Hi, and welcome to another edition of the South American Football Show on the World Football Index. I'm your host, Austin Miller. Today, we will be breaking down match day three from the best tournament in world football, the Conable World Cup Qualifiers. Another exciting week of action to break down for you. Joining me on this week's show, first, a surely exuberant Adam Brandon in Chile. Adam, how are you? I imagine in a better mood than the last time around we were doing podcasts. Yes, certainly am. Absolutely delighted with uh, with last night's result and certainly the first half performance as well, which we're getting to in a bit. But yeah, suddenly you know if if, um, if things are things are looking up again for Chile. And joining me as well is Tom Robinson, our Argentine football expert in England. Tom, how are you doing? Very well, Austin. Long time no speak, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, very. Uh, very happy to be back discussing the uh, brilliant set of matches that we've just watched. So yeah, looking forward to it. Well, let's get right into it, guys. Tom, I will come to you first as we break down this first match that we're going to talk about, which was a 1-1 draw between Argentina and Paraguay at La Bombonera. This was an interesting match, Tom, because there were moments in this match where it looked as though uh, Paraguay wanted to, to have a go at Argentina. They wanted to, to try and make life difficult for what was a, a makeshift back line for, for Scaloni's Argentina uh, by makeshift. Uh, Otamendi, Martinez Cuarta, and Montiel in what vaguely resembled a back three, sometimes a back four. Paraguay won a penalty. Angel Romero converted that penalty. A great individual play. It should be said for Miguel Almiron, who I think was the most dangerous Paraguayan player going forward. And then things kind of slowed down a bit for Paraguay. Argentina scored from a set piece. Tremendous header from Nicolas Gonzalez, who rose above a towering Paraguayan backline, which featured four center backs, it should be said. Junior Alonso, Gustavo Gomez, Fabian Balbuena, and Rojas Four center backs playing across the back four for Paraguay. Good goal from Gonzalez. Moment of controversy in the second half of this match when Argentina looked to have taken the lead through Lionel Messi, only to have that goal brought back for a foul at the midway in the Argentine defensive half that was deemed to have been in the buildup to the goal before the goal. So a dramatic night at La Bomba Tom. Paraguay probably the happier of the two sides. Yeah, I would say so. I, I think that um, obviously they've had a really good start to the qualifying with uh, a draw and a win before this as well. So um, I think they'll be more than happy with the draw. Certainly, as you said, they they did a lot to frustrate Argentina. They were excellent without the ball, really didn't give Argentina much time or space and and kept it compact and, and tight um, there. It's really hard for Argentina to play their way through it. Um, but yeah, as, as you mentioned, the fact that once they'd got that early goal, it did feel that they kind of, rather than going for the jugular and, and finishing off an Argentina side that can be got at, they decided to sort of settle for the draw. Um, and they'll be pretty happy with that. Argentina, I think, will see it more as two points dropped rather than a point gained. Um, but, it, you know, we've got to take into account that Paraguay do have a really good record in Buenos Aires. Um, haven't lost to Argentina there since 1973. Um, obviously, they've lost to Argentina a few times since then, but um, not in Buenos Aires. So, yeah, I think Paraguay will be happy. Argentina will feel like they should have had the win with that disallowed goal there, which I'm sure we'll get onto. But, um, yeah, the same old issues for Argentina, really, namely that a defence that, to be honest, wasn't really 
tested too much, certainly in the second half, just has that mistake or really can't deal with pace. Um, so it's it's kind of the same old problems. we did. I don't think we learnt a whole lot new about the defence there. Um, as you said, playing in a back three, although to be fair in possession, it was almost like a, a back two with uh, Gonzalez, Montiel and, and Paredes just sort of dropping in for sort of the three in front of that two. Um, and, you know, the defenders could just have plenty of time. Otamendi defensively fine, but with the ball, very wasteful, I thought. And obviously, Martinez Cuarta, the one who gave away the penalty. So same old same old issues for there. But I think there were some, some positives uh, to take from it as well. Um, Nico Gonzalez, who... I think caught us all by surprise when he was announced as a, a left wing back, a left fullback, because I don't think many people really are too familiar with him, certainly among Argentinian fans. And there was a lot of news outlets sort of posting who is Nicolas Gonzalez trying to tell the wider public who he was. And, you know, even though he's someone that I've seen a fair bit of, the fact he was playing that deep did take me surprise by surprise. Um, you know, he started out for Argentinos Juniors um, as either a kind of left winger, but more of a, an attacking forward, and played a lot of a lot of his time as a centre forward. He was in that um, side under Gabriel Ainsé that got promoted with um, Alexis McAllister, Damian Battagini, um, and he really kind of broke into everyone's consciousness in, in their in his second season with them. He scored seven goals in twenty four games. And then got the move to Stuttgart. They played quite a lot of money, but they got relegated. So most of his work has come in the second division in um, in Germany. And he scored loads of goals um, coming off left wing and, and sort of was always a bit of a weird left field call from Scaloni. But I thought he did pretty well there. And he, and he showed that, you know, he's quick, he's hardworking, excellent header of the ball, um, got a really, really good leap. Um, and I think... Maybe not someone who's going to be um, a left back for Argentina going forward, but has that versatility where he can pretty much operate anywhere on the left flank or or even contribute further further up. You know, he was very unlucky to have been a judge to have fouled um, Angelo Romero in in the build up to that disallowed Messi goal, and and he was the one who actually sort of pulled the ball back for Lochelso, who who got it across to Messi. So yeah, I think that was that was very harsh. But again, Argentina are going to come off it with unbeaten seven points. Yes, they probably should have a, a few more. But at the end of the day, I don't think it's the end of the world um, considering. Adam, I want to get your opinion on the team selection for Argentina and, and the approach to this match from Scaloni. It almost felt like the first two match days in this competition were maybe a turning point for Argentina. Um, They didn't play particularly well, but picked up all three points against Ecuador. They had a a galvanizing win away in La Paz. Um, Ezequiel Palacios, who left this game injured and is going to miss a significant chunk of time after getting not one, but two knees straight into the back from the Paraguayan goal scorer on Hel Romero. Um, he played well in that Bolivia game. It looked as though Argentina might have been on to something. And then, Adam, it kind of felt like everything that they might have learned kind of went out the window in this match. What did you make of Argentina's performance? And maybe more specifically, what did you view of Scaloni's selection? Yeah, I, I found I found Argentina's first half performance really interesting, actually, because what we've generally seen from Scaloni since he's taken charge is like just 
you know, a fair amount of organisation and and also, you know, playing players in their in their proper positions. You know, in in stark contrast to to a couple of ma- managers previous when Argentina were really a mess, especially uh, defensively. But you know, they had improved under Scaloni as we saw in the first couple of match days. But yeah, this uh, this this game I felt really started to change once uh, Giovanni Lo Celso came on. He's he's a player I've always been a big fan of. I remember that when we started these uh, South American podcasts, these South American football show podcasts a, a few years ago, um, when it was uh, when we were covering the the Rosario Central. Uh, campaign in the I think in 2016 Libertadores, yeah he was he was one of the standout players in 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 that side and yeah he's always a player I've really enjoyed watching and and when he came on in this game I felt that he really um, he really had a massive impact on it he he played slightly further forward than uh, Palacios was playing and by doing that he managed to link the play. Really, really, really nicely, and and he also got closer to Messi, and and to me it seems like Lo Celso is a player that Messi really enjoys playing with, as well. Um, it, it seemed like Messi had a smile on his face a lot of the time uh, when when Lo Celso was on the pitch. So I think that's a really interesting um, thing to note there going forward, because um, yeah, I, I feel that. Lo Celso should definitely be a starter in the, in 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 this Argentina side. Um, yeah, he's uh, like I say, he he came on and he set up the goal, which which got Argentina equalised. Isa from the from the corner, and then you know he he also set up what looked to be Argentina's winner, but obviously um, that VAR decision, um, which was in my opinion very very controversial, but yeah. Um, I'm sure Argentina, along the way, will get their fair share of touchy uh, decisions in their favour. <laughs> the immediate aftermath of of the VAR decision here um, was obviously outrage and and disgust, and you know the usual conversation starters. Um, for me, I I agree with you, Adam. It's it's harsh. It's difficult. It's tough. It's not a decision you like to see made. But at the end of the day under the technicalities of the letters of the rule, it's what got Argentina possession. They didn't give up possession between the foul and the goal. And it's a proper use of VAR under the rules. Um, That being said, I I completely agree with the assessment that it doesn't feel right. It doesn't doesn't feel like football is is my point. And and that is ultimately the biggest issue I think most football fans have with VAR is that it, kind of a lot of the time even though yes it might be following the letter of the law you know to the finest detail but it's also just taking something away but we are you know I had a massive rant about VAR on on the first World Cup qualifying pub we did uh, last month so yeah let's not get into that again but yeah yeah just quickly again on Argentina basically you know the difference here was that the first 30 minutes of the game they were a complete mess um, tactically, um, and yeah, when La Celso came on, that they were a lot more cohesive. Um, there was a lot more structure to the side, um, especially in the second half. 
and uh, and I felt that they probably just about deserved to win this game, although they, although of course it it finished up one one, and and Paraguay have made a, a very decent start. So maybe we should talk a little bit about them. Yeah. Uh, so here's I, here's my thing with Paraguay. They have made a decent start. You know, um, five points from their first three matches. They have what looks to be uh, three points coming on Tuesday against Bolivia. If I think I'll reassess Paraguay maybe after that Bolivia match. If they pick up all three points, eight from fours is a really good number. But individual errors have cost them. You know, I feel like they could have had three points in that Peru match, but poor defending. And, and Paraguay need to be better defensively. Very nearly threw away two points against Venezuela on match day two. And then here, the corner was only set up because of a, a, a bad play by Rojas maybe playing out of position. So I think... You know, the big picture of, of five points from these three individual matches maybe isn't that bad. But I almost wonder, Adam, if, you know, come 2022, we're looking back and Paraguay is, is scratching and clawing for these points. If we don't maybe look back and say, oh, there could have been a couple more points for them to be had uh, over these matches and they could have had an even better start than they have had. Especially from set pieces as well. Their defending's been surprisingly bad. You know, you think a typical Paraguayan side, especially when you've got four centre-backs playing in the back four, you think, oh, bread and butter, get those corners and free kicks cleared away. But the fact that they conceded to, you know, not the biggest Argentina side, I think Peru got a few goals against them from set pieces as well. It really points to a bit bit of an uncharacteristic weakness in their side. And I think I saw a stat from Mr Chip saying that Argentina hadn't scored a header from a set piece in a World Cup qualifier, so a bit, um, bit, bit random. But uh, in twenty years, um, Roberto Ajala versus Venezuela. So the fact that they're giving up a, a headed goal to Argentina definitely points to some, you know, individual errors there that that are costing. Because other than that, they are a really solid, hardworking side with a, enough class in the final third and some and some good quality midfielders and um in there as well um that, that they should be you know giving themselves a really good chance of of qualifying but as you said Austin these errors may well come back to haunt them one thing else as, as well that I wanted to to mention was um Angel Romero obviously had a, a big uh, part to play in this what with the penalty and also the injury I mean it was very similar to the the Z- uh, Zuniga or Neymar um, injury that that Palacios got there and I mean probably not blatant enough for VAR to reverse the decision but I think they slightly got away with one there and also there's a bit of previous between Palacios and Romero Palacios cleared him out in a in a river versus San Lorenzo game so that might have been a bit of uh, revenge but as as we've mentioned it was actually a bit of a blessing in disguise that the Chelsea came on because obviously he yeah. he was the one who picked the lock and and helped turn the game in Argentina's favor even if they didn't get the win and and I think it points now where Lo Celso, for me, should always be starting for Argentina. Um, and alongside De Paul and Paredes, they seem like the midfield three. But obviously, when Palacios is fit, he's kind of a really good option to have in games like away to Bolivia or away to Ecuador or teams like that. So there's a bit of variation there from from those kind of four midfielders who you would say are probably Argentina's sort of best for central midfielders at the moment. Yeah, Argentina also got away with a possible red card as well late on. Montiel. And then he kept it in. 
Montiel, yeah. 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 I, 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 I don't think that was, was a red card. Probably Montiel. That was a bit. That yeah. not, not as it much was, as the uh, Romero one. There was there was no attempt to play the ball whatsoever. It was it was all about the man, and for me, <laughs> it was cynical enough to to certainly be in a conversation for a red card, but. Well, let's move on to our next game to break down. We'll, we'll stick on Thursday and we'll go up to the thin air of La Paz and we will talk about Ecuador's 3-2 win against Bolivia. A dramatic afternoon and another good performance here from Gustavo Alfaro's Ecuador who have bounced back after a poor showing on match day one. They now sit on six points after two matches. For Bolivia, they sit bottom of the table uh, with no points and another Poor performance, I think it can be said, from Bolivia. Although this match was was definitely entertaining. Uh, Juan Carlos Arce gave the Bolivians the lead uh, in the first half. And then Ecuador came back in the second half with a pair of goals better. Caicedo and Angel Mana to make it 2-1. Marcelo Martins Moreno scored quickly then after to make it 2-2. And then a dramatic late penalty for the Ecuadorians. Carlos Grueso scored that penalty after VAR intervened for a handball decision against Bolivia that probably goes with the letter of the law, but certainly doesn't go with the, the, the feel of the law. I think it's fair to be said, Adam, what did you make of this match? Ecuador, I thought were pretty good here. Um, aside from Alfaro that I think he went with the intention of trying to neutralize the effect of the altitude. A lot of players who play in Quito, which obviously itself sits at altitude, um, at the end of the day, I think the three points is what will matter most. But but there are signs from this Ecuador side that they're going to be well and in this fight as, as qualification continues on. Yeah, I, f- I, f- I felt that in the first half, um, certainly in the sort of the first 15 minutes or so, Ecuador looked the really superior side in, in this game. Um, Mena missed a couple of good chances either side of Bolivia taking the lead and and that was a that was a really nicely worked goal from Bolivia actually their one moment of quality in in this match I I would say um really um really nice finish from from Arce as well to 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 put them ahead um but yeah Ecuador I felt you know are already fairly reliant on how well Moises Caicedo plays, um, <laughs> which is fairly ridiculous at 18. But that really does feel like the story of these first three games for them. If you think that, you know, against Argentina, he, he gave maybe quite a nervy and fairly meek display, I felt, watching it back. And against against Uruguay, he, he you know, dominated that game from, from start to finish, grabbed the first goal. Uh, and, and was a real threat throughout. And in this game, he, again, he gave a slightly lackluster, and 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 he didn't seem quite on it in the in the first half. But straight from the kickoff, basically in the second half, well, you know, he he was on it, and he soon set up the equaliser for Beda Casero. Um, Beda Casero, his teammate at Independiente de Valle, of course. Um, and I felt that he was another player who looked really sort of nervous and, and didn't quite feel the game in the first half, but was then really good in the second half. Um, and Ecuador always had that option down down that left flank throughout this match to, to do damage. And yeah, that was, I thought it was a fantastic finish from, from Bode Casado. And also he did a celebration where he sank to his knees 
and uh, and just looked really emotional after. I'm not sure how many caps he's got for Ecuador. I know that he's got a couple in the past, but you know he hasn't been a regular over over years. And and I felt that you know he felt that he'd taken his chance there, basically, in, in the Ecuador shirt to to make a great comp- contribution. It seemed to mean a lot to him. Um, and yeah, and thereafter, sort of the next sort of ten minutes or so, um, Ecuador looked in complete control. Um, they went 2-1 up again, Moises Caseo, um, you know, laying off a nice pass to Mena, who who cut inside, beat a defender and then hit a shot in, into the near post. It came off the post and, uh, and, and went into the net. Uh, pretty nice finish and made up for the two. Um, the two easier chances that he had missed in the in the first half, and at that point it felt like Ecuador were probably going to run away with this one. To me, it just seemed like Moises had stepped it up, and so had Ecuador, and and Bolivia couldn't handle it. And then, sort of out the blue, Bolivia equalised from a corner. Martins, uh, the the Brazilian-born now Bolivian legend, getting his getting his head onto it to make it two-two. Um, from a from a corner where, for some reason, the Ecuador defenders just decided to leave the biggest threat unmarked, which was very interesting defending. Um, and and after that, for sort of a 10-15 minute spell, I was worried for Ecuador for the first time in this game, really, because it, it felt like Bolivia were were suddenly in the ascendancy. Um, but yeah. Um, Alfaro made a couple of changes and, and the introduction of Gonzalo Blata really helped to swing the game back towards Ecuador in sort of the last 15, 20 minutes. But he, he set up he set up a couple of chances and, and then and of course it was him who won the penalty. Uh, a ball was crossed in and it came flying off the hill with the Bolivia player up onto his arm. Pre-VAR, there's no chance this this penalty is is, is given, but it was reviewed um, on VAR and was therefore given because it was deemed that the Bolivia defender had his arm sort of out the silhouette of his body, and and yeah, and that's a handball these days, and yeah, and it was Carlos Guerrero who stepped up and and had the bottle to to put the penalty away to win this game for Ecuador 3-2. I think they even had a chance to make it 4-2 late on, if I remember rightly. It's a, it's a big win for Ecuador. It's, yeah, this is generally a happy hunting ground for Ecuador. They hadn't lost in the Paz since 1997. So, yeah, I think in that time now, they've had three wins and three draws there. So, yeah, this isn't like a surprise by any means, but what I will say, you know, putting this Bolivia performance together with the performance they gave against Argentina, I'm still a bit baffled by what uh, Cesar Farias has done with this Bolivia team. Because the one thing over years when we've watched World Cup qualifiers in, in La Paz, you can guarantee is that Bolivia will play with like a really high intensity and really get in the face of the opposition. But that just doesn't seem to happen now under... <laughs> Yeah, so um, I think I can't see him lasting much longer, basically, as Bolivian manager, because Bolivia's chances going into any World Cup qualifying are completely dependent on their home form. And to make the most of that home form, they've got to 
press with great intensity and they're simply not doing that and and without that I just don't see a route for them winning hardly any games in this World Cup qualifying series especially as teams are now adapting techniques to sort of uh, reduce the effects of altitude um, uh, as we've seen with Argentina now picking up results in La Paz and I think Uruguay got their first win there in in, in La Paz in, in qualifying for 2018 as well so yeah it's it's very worrying times for Bolivia I would say. Well for more reasons than one Adam because I don't know who would make the decision to change managers for the Bolivian national team at this point. Uh, the acting president for Bolivia did not make it to the end of the match in the stadium on Thursday. Um he was politely escorted out uh, in the presence of, of police. So the Bolivian Federation, we've touched upon this before World Cup qualifying started. Uh, it's not in a consistent spot right now. So at this point, I think it might be Farias' decision to fire himself, and I don't think he'll do that. So, uh, Tom, not great for Bolivia right now. Yeah, I was going to say that even for for Bolivia, they're a real shambles right now, both on and off the pitch, as, as you mentioned there. You know, they've got some good youngsters coming through, like Fernandez, Abrego, Saavedra. So there is a bit of hope for the future, maybe. But the fact they're still relying on their golden oldies for, for the goals up front is kind of says it all, really. Arce and Moreno are still good at this level, but they're really struggling to to put any kind of solid coherent team together and yeah you just think that things have got to change there if if they want to turn it around because already even after three games um and, and two home games crucially they feel like they're getting almost out of touch of of any chance of making a, a half-hearted attempt to, to maybe qualify so yeah feels almost terminal for Bolivia and yeah Ecuador I think we've seen both sort of the, the the good and the bad of them. They're a bit Jekyll and Hyde sometimes within the same game, but when they're good, they are very good. Um, and I, and it's nice as well, like Adam mentioned there, Bear Caicedo coming up with it with a good goal. I mean, I do think Lampe was pretty poor on that first goal and not great on the second goal either. But um, you see these guys who are maybe later in their career who haven't been across to Europe. Angel Mena is another one who's, you know, for the last five or six years, certainly for Emelec and uh, Leon, he's scored a lot of goals. And it would be really nice, I think, if if these type of players could make probably their only chance to get to a World Cup. Um, And it would be really great to see them sort of towards the end of their career having a go and, and getting a chance on the on the world stage obviously they've got these great young players coming through so the the health of Ecuadorian football feels feels good um but yeah certainly positives positive Ecuador and and just further negatives for Bolivia and as we've reached close to the midway point of this podcast it feels time to bring on a halftime substitute and that is our expert in Colombia Simon Edwards Simon you've had a bit of lion this morning I imagine the mood in Medellin isn't that great. A 3-0 loss for Colombia against Uruguay. We'll get on to that in a minute. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I apologize for that. Um, we had some some wine and some some rancheros, a bit of vallenatos last night. Everyone was singing depressing songs. I don't think it was football related because my girlfriend thought it was hilarious that I was more upset about her country losing than she was. Um, but still, I apologize and I'm here. 
I'm ready for a late substitute appearance. Hopefully I can make a better impact than some of Columbia's uh, late introductions. I heard rumors that you were the Edwin Cardona of this podcast, Simon. Is that true? Well, I mean, perhaps on my uh, free kick technique, uh, hopefully not on my on-the-field contribution. So, Simon, let's get into this. Uh, there's no way beating around it. This was a poor performance from Columbia. Pretty much from start to finish, there were moments in this match when it looked like they might be able to turn it around. But an early goal for Uruguay after an early defensive error from Colombia. Uh, Edinson Cavani back in the Uruguay squad, paired with Luis Suarez, and, and it felt like insert any year from the last 10 years where Uruguay were firing on all cylinders. Colombia kind of started to maybe get back in this match. Then they gave away a penalty, and Uruguay went 2-0 up fairly early on in the second half. And from there... It was pretty much curtains for this Colombian side. Nunez with a really nice strike to, to make it 3-0, the final score for Uruguay. Um, poor performance from Colombia, Simon. Not a lot to really highlight. Where did this go wrong for Carlos Queiroz's men? Was it simply they conceded early, or was there more to it? Yeah. No, there, there is more, but I think that's a, a good place to start. I mean, if you pass the ball straight to, to Uruguay out of the defense and, and they go through and score within five minutes then plans are going to have to change. And I would say the plans changed a little bit too dramatically, perhaps. Um, Quiros set up with a a fairly conservative, at least the midfield. I mean, Wilma Barrios uh, anchoring alongside Mateo Soribe and uh, Jefferson Lerma. Uh, But he had Cuadrado at right back. And I'm sure, I don't watch enough Italian football, but I'm sure Cuadrado is amazing for Juventus at right back. But for Colombia, he's a right winger just in the wrong position <laughs> or a midfielder. He's been really good in the midfield as well, but he plays as a winger um, despite being at right back. Provides no support for the central defenders. You know, I imagine for Juventus, he doesn't have to do very much defending very often uh, in a dominant Juventus side. But for this Colombia right now, he, he definitely does and he doesn't. But obviously, Jedi Mina passing the ball straight into trouble. Um, very, very sloppy pass after five minutes was was not a great start. After 30 minutes, they took off Wilma Barrios, the holding midfielder, and brought on uh, Luis Diaz, who had a really good game. Luis Diaz was uh, a really interesting uh, introduction off the bench. He livened things up. He was beating players, but... You know, this was kind of the beginning of a transformation which went from Colombia having a very conservative side looking to, you know, control the midfield and get the ball forward, which they weren't really doing very well initially at all, um, to just throwing on five strikers and just seeing what happens. And then what happens is you lose because Uruguay are really good at defending and, and hitting on the break. Um, so a lot of credit to Uruguay, uh, Torreira and... Uh, in midfield was was excellent uh, alongside uh, Betancourt, who was excellent as well. Those two, um, I think, were probably given a slightly easier job when Colombia took off all of their central midfielders and, and brought on forwards. Um, again, uh, Alfredo Morelos coming off the bench. He's he can only play as a number nine, and he's been stuck on the wing. Like, what's the point? He's never going to dribble past anyone. He's not uh, looking to drop deep and get the ball. He's just another striker playing somewhere off to the side of the pitch. <laughs> it's ridiculous. So, you know, I was positive about Kiros, but these huge swings starting off negative when things go bad, then suddenly just throwing on a load of strikers doesn't feel very nuanced. Um, so a really disappointing day uh, for Colombia. Um, and the second goal again, James Rodriguez, just this 
He's a really experienced, intelligent player. Receiving the ball as the last man on a short free kick under pressure from two or three Uruguayans and then trying to dribble his way past was stupid. <laughs> it was the worst thing I've ever seen on a football pitch. I mean, it wasn't, but Jesus, it, it felt like it at the time. Um, so just a, a real lack. The thing about Colombia is they swing wildly from being really, really good to being shockingly bad given the quality they have. Uh, put them under a bit of mental pressure, um, get in their heads, get them off their game, and they can be really bad. Um, and it looks like I think this is going to be the issue they have. The teams that have experience, a bit of nous, a bit of game management can can really do damage. Uruguay have that. We've seen Chile do that a couple of times. Uh, and I'm, there's a few other teams in this uh, tournament who might be able to do it as well. So the quality's there, but they weren't on it. They weren't on it at all uh, in this game. Murillo, I think, was quite good at the back. And Duvan ran, the, ran, the, ran himself into the ground. Mojica probably gave the best outlet on the left. But they were very narrow. They were very narrow against a, a Uruguay team that loved them coming through the middle repeatedly. Uh, and not good. Not good. Do you, do, do you think that the, the absence of Davison Sanchez was a key factor here? Well, it's difficult to say. I mean, I think Mino and Sanchez have worked really well. Like the, the defensive frailties we've seen or the inconsistencies we've seen in club level haven't been evident for Colombia up until... Uh, this week um, but that said I think Jason was one of the better performers who came in so whether Mina didn't feel as comfortable it's hard to say because you wouldn't expect Davison Sanchez to be the kind of mature calming influence um, whereas Jason Morillo is perhaps a little has a lower ceiling perhaps but is is smart and experienced so it's it's hard to imagine that an absence of Davinson Sanchez led to Jerry Mina being so reckless and he finished the game on a red card. And what Colombia need right now is not another central defensive absentee, although uh, Jerry Mina of yesterday perhaps won't be missed uh, with Lukami coming in. And despite his young age, being a pretty consistent, solid central defender. So we shall see, we shall see. Yeah, Colombia aren't that short of uh, quality centre-backs really, are they? Um, the other thing I was going to ask you, Simon, was uh, was about the midfield selection. It was a little bit close to being um, three defensive-minded midfielders. <laughs> yeah, I, I think no, no, no. of England 2018. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't get me started. Don't get me started. Um, yeah, well, I think I think the plan was clearly to have the fullbacks overlapping. Um, but and, and obviously I'm sure the idea is look Uruguay are playing a flat midfield four if we have three in the middle we can control the middle Cuadrado and Mojica can push up it kind of makes some sense but what what you'll need is you'll need Barrios to sit very very deep because Suarez and Cavani can't be left alone <laughs> up against Mino and uh, Morillo um, so I think I think uh, I think that was the concern. And I think Matias Uribe had a pretty good game. Uh, Lema's got a lot of energy. Um, but yeah, it was... The, the, the concern with this kind of setup is what we, what we saw initially. Colombia couldn't progress the ball forward. Um, and I think Colombia are most effective... And again, this might sound simple, but when they can play, when they can force the game into the, into the half of the opposition, they're, they're pretty good. Because they'll, they'll look to play short passes and little uh, pass and move, little triangles, which is, which is nice. And 
around the opposition penalty box can cause panic and can enable a, a little bit of a yard to get the shot off. But if you do that close to your own goal, without having the confidence to, to work your way forward or having the outlet, because Hammers really struggled to find space and uh, Mordiel didn't have a good game, um, then you're just, you're just asking for trouble. <laughs> you're asking for trouble. Uh, a shaky performance with lots of passing around your own goal in the first half and then just sticking a load of forwards up front and not finding them in the second half. So two types of bad performance from Colombia yesterday. Simon, I, I want to get on to Uruguay in a second, but one final question for you. A lot of pressure now on this Colombia side, who when you look at kind of the overall results of their performances thus far, it hasn't been great. They got the three points against Venezuela, uh, dug out a point against Chile and maybe what was their best performance. They were poor here and now a really tricky trip to play Ecuador, who their last time out in Quito absolutely thrashed this same Uruguay side. A bit of pressure on Queiroz and this side going into that match on Tuesday? Yeah, you know, it's Colombia, so <laughs> um, opinions on Kiros. There'll be a wide range of opinions from he is the worst manager I've ever seen to, no, no, he's, he's still good, he's still good. Um, I, you know, I think, I think with Ecuador, um, potentially they have some of the similar qualities and frailties of Colombia. Um, I, I, my concern with Colombia is when they play against a team that's really, really smart and experienced, maybe not as individually blessed or full of athletic quality which is I think what Colombia have a lot of uh, individual talent and a lot of uh, athletic ability to drive past players I think with Ecuador they'll be meeting someone with some of the same qualities and the same weaknesses so hopefully uh, Colombia's uh, experience and individual quality will will be the key factor in that in that game but you know, I think I think there's a bit of a blueprint here to how to get at Colombia. You know, do what do what uh, Chile did, do what uh, Uruguay did to an extent away from home. Just be smarter, be more consistent, and uh, get in their heads. Colombia will get wound up. Colombia will take unnecessary risks, and the manager seems to be feeding into that. You know, if you if you left it up to the players, they would have gone right. Fine, let's just all go forward then, <laughs> right? But you really want a manager to be kind of above that and go, no, no, guys, look, let's let's keep keep a bit of uh, balance to this. Let's not let this game get out of hand. Let's you know, let's build up a bit of momentum and try and. But now, nah, go on then, off, go on then, go on, Morelos, you go on, Luis Diaz, off you go up front. Uh, best of luck, see what we can do. Falcao, how are you feeling? All right, we're fine. Who else can we throw up? Cardona, you're fun. Go on, on you go as well. So, <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, it, it felt like it was a Colombia team built by a Colombian committee of over exaggerated, you know, over enthusiastic fans. I, I, I did feel that of all the World Cup qualifier matches we've seen so far, you know, without without fans, this felt like the game where not having them really had an impact on how the home side played. Because Colombia were so, yeah, they were lacking in, in intensity, especially in that first uh, 20, 25 minutes. And that is something that you can rarely accuse Colombia of. Um, when when they play in Barranquilla, so yeah, I feel I feel I feel that was a factor, although it can't be used as an excuse because basically it's the it's it's, it's the same scenario for for everyone. Um, Tom Uruguay's performance was 
was certainly their best yet. This was a huge step up in in performance levels from from last month, where they were fortunate to beat Chile, and then yeah, they were basically hammered um, performance wise anyway by by Ecuador, and it would have been result wise too, if not for those two late uh, Luis Suarez penalties. Um, but yeah, I, I was really impressed with uh, with Uruguay's midfield in this game. When last month I was far from impressed, and the energy of Nandez has really caught my eye. But obviously, it helped having um, players such as Cavani up top and and Jimenez at the back coming back into the fray as well. Massive, massive result for Uruguay. I think you, yeah, you put it in context fantastically. There, they really needed to bounce back from those two really poor performances so it was very much a case of going back to basics you know having Jimenez back in defence was huge I can't stress how important that was to them Um, I think he obviously as well as being an upgrade on people like Coates um, he also makes Godin a lot better as well at, at this stage maybe before it was a case of Godin guiding Jimenez through games but I think Jimenez now with you know the extra mobility that Godin doesn't have anymore is is really crucial and they've got such a great understanding obviously Suarez and Cavani up front doing doing the business still um and as you said the midfield was probably the area of the pitch where we saw the biggest improvement um Simon spoke about Torreira I think he always is going to add something to the midfield he's he feels very much like one of those classic Uruguayan players who will always raise their game for the national team regardless of uh, club form and Nandez is exactly the same as well he's he's that mixture of good technical skills but also he's got that fire in his belly and um, that fighting spirit that just makes him a perfect um, fit for this Uruguay side and I think Bentancourt um, although he can occasionally dally on his in dangerous areas, I thought he was back to his best for most of the game as well. He's he's a proper Rolls Royce midfielder when he gets going, and there were some really nice touches from him, um, particularly for the uh, um, con- contribution for the second goal. So, yeah, really really important that they bounce back, and, and they certainly did. Even players like Vina and Dela Cruz, who are still finding their place in this Uruguay squad, I thought were a lot better than the Ecuador game. Um, and um, a really, really fantastic performance from them. Suarez now um, has 63 goals at uh, international level, one more than the Brazilian Ronaldo. Um, and it was good to see Darwin Nunez come on and, and score his first goal. Really nice uh, goal as well to, to open his account. And he's someone who, at under 20 level, I didn't really think a great deal of. I thought he was all physique, but didn't have much else to his game. But he, he's shown at, yeah. at Almeria and, and now Benfica that he's got a really... Um, yeah, really promising future. And also I loved when I, when I, when I speak about going back to basics, how, how more basic can it can be or how more typically Uruguayan than having Cavani on one wing and Darwin Nunez in midfield as well. I felt like that was the most kind of Uruguayan thing ever. Just everyone sacrificing themselves for the collective and, and coming up with a, coming up with a result. Yeah. I, I, I found Darwin Nunez's rise in the, in the last couple of years, really, fascinating um like you at, at under 20 level when i saw him he, you know he didn't stand out at all but yeah he does seem to have an incredible drive to improve himself and and that's reflected on the pitch as well how he plays you know he's he's very committed it was also good to see uh, Gabriel Neves and his fantastic fantastic fighter pilot mustache come on for his debut as well there was 
I mean, even though, as I said, Uruguay kind of going back to basics and relying on, you know, their veteran strikers, there is a youthful feel to this team as well. They've they've managed the transition quite well, I think. Lots of players in there sort of around the age of 25 um, or, or less. And it kind of feels like they're, they're gaining the experience that's going to be crucial. And they've got plenty of even younger players like Brian Rodriguez um, and and obviously Pelistre is, is someone who might see in the future, maybe in Matias Arezzo. So there's there's feels like Uruguay, the the, the feel good factor about them is back. Um, but obviously they're going to have to follow that up with a with a big game and a big performance uh, against Brazil. So let's not get too excited. But certainly this was more like it from Uruguay. Yeah, that Uruguay-Brazil game certainly looks very tasty on Tuesday after this Uruguay performance in particular, and also, as we'll get on to in a minute, what we saw from Brazil. Adam, I'll come to you now as, as we break down the, the, what is it called, the Derby of the Pacific, the Pacific Derby. Uh, Chile 2, Peru 0, a turn-back-the-clock performance from Arturo Vidal. Uh, first half brace for him, including a fantastic, fantastic strike for the first goal. The second, uh, Scrappy kind of got himself in the right position to finish it off goal. And also a tremendous performance from Claudio Bravo uh, for Chile to, to keep this match at, at 2-0 right after that, right before halftime, I should say. Uh, much better from Chile, Adam, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, really, really impressive first half. Um, really liked the way Chile went about it. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised at how well uh, maybe some of the lesser-known figures in this in this Chile side played. Um, Menenes on the on the wing, who replaced Alexis Sanchez because Sanchez wasn't quite fit enough. Um, he had an early chance and 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 hit it hit it fairly well, but you know it was a fairly comfortable save. And but the the player who really impressed me most, I would say, you know, aside from Vidal, obviously, <laughs> who who absolutely ran the ran the show and and scored scored two goals. The first one being amazing. But yeah, apart from Vidal, who was captain as well, um, was Felipe Mora, who is a player that I wrote about on World Football Index actually a couple of years ago when he moved from Universidad de Chile to. to to MOS and I've always seen him more of a sort of a a fox in the box you know poacher type striker so I I was quite surprised he was given the nod um, to play this role which which Vargas struggled with last month which is you know really to be sort of a focal point of attack and try and bring in um, the the three behind him in in Chile's 4-2-3-1 um, but Mora did it fantastically, I thought. I thought, and and set up that uh, set up a, a couple of chances in the first half. He was involved in the in the second goal as well, putting putting the ball out wide to Oriana, who crossed in. Mora got his head onto it, and it and it bounced and, and fell into the path of of Vidal, who who got his second. But yeah, this was a this was a fairly comfortable chilly win over a Peru side who. In the first half, got their tactics and and formation wrong. Certainly in terms of of personnel, uh, I was very surprised to see Cueva on on the bench. And I've seen that Gareca has admitted he got that one wrong. 
Um, because once Cueva came on in the second half and started threading some through balls, he came on in the, in the first half, Adam. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, he came on in the first half, but yeah, and 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 had an impact as well yeah. when it when he did come on because, like you said earlier, Bravo had to make a, a huge save at the end of the end of the first half, which. If he hadn't had done, then I think Peru might have been able to claw claw a drawback from this. But yeah, that was probably the 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 really big moment in the game was that Bravo save just on half time from Rui Diaz. Yeah, and uh, the other thing to note when Bravo made that save, I, th- I, th- I think it was at that moment anyway. Him and Vidal kind of congratulated each other on their first half display. Which um, it it was the it was the faintest of touches, hand to hand. They didn't look at each other in the eye, but they did touch skin. And given the the tension between those two over the last few years, yeah, this is progress. Uh, yeah, that was that was basically kissing and making up, uh, as far as Chileans are concerned, just to see them to touch hands once more. Uh, one one of the one one of the other really interesting things about this uh, this Chile game was uh, Bosha Yor coming back in to to the fray. Um, he picked up a yellow card in the first half, which did worry me a bit. And and in that lead up to that big chance Peru had right on half time, it, yeah, he almost brought Carrillo down, and it could have been a, a second yellow if 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 a Peruvian player had gone down. Um, but overall, he he gave a typical, very professional and assured display at, at left back, and and having retired from international football last year, Rueda begged him to come back, and he he did give a performance to suggest you know why the Chilean coaching staff still rate him so highly, and and he's considered a leader in the dressing room as well, and yeah, he he is one of the icons of the. Uh, of of this side um over over the last decade because you know although he's not had an amazing club career you know he he did have he did he did have um fairly decent spells with Wigan and Birmingham in the Premier League which was pretty much a high point of his club club career yeah in a chilly shirt he's been absolutely exceptional and he's the only Chilean player in um in in their history to score in two different World Cups as well, which is which is quite the achievement for for a player um, in his position. So yeah, um, yeah, I was delighted to see Bosayor um, play so well, and and all that backline really gave a solid performance. Isla made a superb tackle in the first half when uh, when Peru looked dangerous in one of their typical transitions. So yeah, I, I felt Polgar looked a little bit tired at times. Oriana disappointed for me mostly on the left wing, although he did play a role in that in in that second goal. Pinares, who I feel I'm not his biggest fan, put it that way. He, he's capable of moments of magic for for Catolica, but at this level, I always feel he 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 often looks yeah a little bit below the level required. But I felt that this was probably his best game in a Chile shirt. But yeah, overall, the two standout players were. Bravo in goal, and uh, and Vidal, who picked up the Man of the Match award, and that first goal, which has done the rounds on social media, obviously, and 
it was an absolutely spectacular strike. And, and what I really loved about it was the the sound it made as it hit the net was a was a beautiful, beautiful sound. That Adam is is probably the only positive of of football matches without fans um, is the ability to, as you said, hear that strike hit the back of the net or hear the the raw sound of of the game, like like when a strike like that hits the post. Adam, now for Chile, a big opportunity to consolidate this performance. They put in by far their best performance of the three matches so far. A trip to a Venezuela side that is yet to pick up a point. They look a little bit lost themselves. And perhaps crucially here, Adam, Alexis Sanchez only played a little less than 10 minutes in this match. As you said, he wasn't fit enough to go from the start. So a chance that Chile could maybe have him at full strength for what should be could be a match, I guess, against the side that's bunkered in. Yeah, so for this to be a really good and um, happy Chile camp, they really need to follow last night's performance up with with another three points on Tuesday away to Venezuela. Um, they have a fairly decent record there, so they will go there with with confidence that they can get a win, especially with Venezuela not looking up to much so far. In, in these World Cup qualifiers, I think it's I think it's fair to say. Um, but yeah, uh, like you say, the fact that Alexis Sanchez could well be very fresh for that one is 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 very promising as well. And yeah, I'm I'm hopeful of uh, of Chile picking up another three points there. And and if they do, then suddenly it's 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 looking fairly rosy. Although what I will say is that the average age of that Chile side last night was was around 31 I believe so although there was some new faces in in the side the the key players were still well past their 30s Vidal is 33 now and yes he did it last night but can he and can some of those other older players reproduce it again three four days later because you know this is the key now for for Chile if they are to make it to Qatar 2022. Simon, I want to bring you in on the Peru side of things. Gareca seemed to, to get his, his team selection wrong from the start, admitted as much after the match, admitted as much really during the match by bringing Cueva on as a first-half substitute. And now with, with Argentina looming on, on Tuesday in Lima, Peru are, are kind of behind the pace here. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think in the second half, I think Peru created a few chances, but it, it always felt to me that Chile's experience was was going to help see them through. <clears throat> there were a few chances here and there, but you know this Peru side is is solid. It's not bad. It's it's got it's got some pace out wide. Avingulo, Carrillo come from wide areas, but I think they were yeah. I think they are a little bit short. They lack obviously lack a standout striker. Rui Diaz <clears throat> isn't the same level, particularly for Peru as Paulo Guerrero doesn't provide that same focal point in attack. It, it doesn't allow Peru... So much of Peru's game is based around having that central striker who's in the box, who's going to be there occupying the central defenders, which will allow the likes of Cueva to find some space in behind and will mean their wingers can get balls into the area. So you take that out and they've got less less, uh, less of a clear plan. Um, so that's my concern with this Peruvian side. Um, they, their defence is okay, Without having huge great stars, uh, Arujo, Abraham are fine. They're, they're pretty good. The fullbacks 
are attack-minded but fairly conservative in their play. The goalkeeper is good in Gajese. Tapio and Jotun give some good protection. So I think their, their ceiling is a little bit lower, but I think they have a decent balance. But all of that kind of goes out the window when you're missing that key piece in the attack in the, the number nine, Paulo Guerrero. So I think they'll be solid. I think they'll kind of probably be around the mid-table in this, in this group throughout the competition. Um, but yeah, I think Chile managed it well. I think Chile's experience um, is something that, that's tripped up Colombia and I think will keep them in contention even when they're maybe not playing their best football. Getting the two goals early, I think, uh, with this experienced Chilean side, um, despite Peru finding the, the occasional chance in the second half, I always just always felt that Chile's experience was going to see them through and uh, that's what happened on the night. Tom, could the solution at the number nine position for Peru be the long-awaited arrival of Gianluca Lapadula, who we saw make his Peru debut last night, played the, the last half an hour of that match. Italian-born, um, has a Peruvian heritage, a player that they've been wanting and, and clamoring for for quite some time. Do, do you view him as a, a key part, maybe, of the solution for Peru going forward? Because even when Guerrero comes back, which we expect him to come back, He's not getting any younger while he's sitting out here. Yeah, I mean, you read my mind there. I was just going to bring him in to the conversation because he does feel like the closest replacement to Guerrero that uh, Peru have. And I mean, yes, it's early days. It'll be interesting to see how he fits in. But from what Simon was describing there, he would be a much better fit to kind of bring the best out of the likes of Carrillo and Ruiz, um, well, and other um, wingers and, and the quick players they've got running running off him. Certainly Quaver, I thought, was was good when he came on, probably Peru's best player. And, and if they have that focal point, as Simon said, then I think they could cause teams a bit more trouble. And, and Lapadula, 30 minutes isn't really enough to... Um, sort of analyse him too much, but I thought he made quite a lot of good movements off the ball, um, maybe didn't get the service um, that he needed, but I think he certainly fits that role better. And I, if I was Gareca, I'd be, I'd be playing him from the start against Argentina and, and you know, hoping that he can at least tie up one of those two centre-backs and, and then exploit the, the lack of pace um, for, for the runners coming in. So, that's got to be the way to go. It seems like Gareca's maybe putting a bit too much faith in the, the guys who, who got him to the last World Cup and, and maybe it's time to bring in a few more players. But there just doesn't seem to be loads of game changers coming off off the bench there. So um, it's going to be very, very interesting, that Argentina game, both for Peru and Argentina. And I think now that we've got a few games under our belts and we've had a chance to look at all the teams all the games have kind of got an added interest and an added dynamic to him. So, yeah, certainly let's give Lapadula a go. That's what I say. Yeah, and I think that match is particularly interesting because, you know, it's still early in this qualification cycle. There's a long way to go, particularly when you look at the calendar. But four matches out of 18, you know, it's time to start doing something. And... It, if you kind of look at how that match is going to go, all right, Argentina's already on seven points. If they can win or even pick up a point away to Peru, I think they'll be feeling, all right, you know, we've, we've done well. We've gotten off to a good start. We're on track. Whereas Peru, you know, they've granted they've, they've had difficult fixtures. They've already had to play Brazil at home and now they play Argentina at home. So you imagine that the fixtures will get easier for them. 
But if they're looking up at the table, they're going to have to to kick on into another gear uh, when, when we resume again in March. So I think that's a really interesting match on Tuesday, and, and it's it's a fascinating clash of two teams that could really do with with all three points from that match. And I think that's what, what makes it particularly intriguing, and, and is one I'm certainly looking forward to. Yeah, Peru. It's not it's not like Peru are completely underperforming. I would say you know they usually lose away to Chile. Um, yeah, they. they I, f- I think they don't have a particularly good record at home to Brazil either. Um, I think they beat Paraguay when they qualified for Russia 2018 and they only drew this time. So maybe you can see that as, as two points dropped. But, you know, Peru could even afford to lose to Chile twice in in, in World Cup qualifying last, last time around and still make it. So... Yeah, they shouldn't be maybe too downhearted, but I think they do need to maybe get a win soon just just for confidence reasons. Hold opinion anything. there, Adam, that at some point Peru are going to need to win a match if they're going to make the World Cup. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Well, they've, they've got well, Bolivia and Venezuela after Argentina. Um, right, like, okay. You're at altitude, but that doesn't seem too difficult at the moment, at least. Get the Nacional squad in for that Bolivia match. Do it, Careca. Do it. Um, or, or, or they need Bolivia to play sure. uh, Paraguayan. Yeah, that, that might be their their best route to works too. Uh, have a World Cup. Um, <laughs> let's break down the final match of of match day three here, guys. And uh, Tom, I think I'll give you the uh, the delight of of breaking down what was in truth a dull dull evening of football at the Modem B. Brazil one, Venezuela nil. Roberto Firmino with the goal about midway through the second half. Venezuela came into this match with one plan, and that was put as many men behind the ball as possible and see if we can make it 90 minutes. They didn't do that, and once they'd conceded, uh, their really only chance came from a a Romulo Otero free kick late on. This was a dull performance. Uh, Cheech will will sing the praises of of a Brazil side that are missing some key contributors, including obviously Neymar. But Tom, this was not an advert for the South American World Cup qualifiers. Saving the best till last, I see. Um, But yeah, you're completely right there. It was was not anything to get too excited about. Um, Brazil, comfortable, routine, Bit maybe a bit trickier than they would have liked. I'm sure they would have liked to have wrapped the game up um, before they did. But at the same time, getting the three points at home without breaking too much of a sweat, I think was you know was always was always the aim. And especially without not not just Neymar, but also um, without Casemiro as well. Two of their kind of key players, they're in good shape. I think their defense is is clearly the best on the continent they're finding a way to incorporate the likes of Alan and, and Douglas Louise um, who, are, who are gaining more and more of a role in the national team I think probably the only place that's maybe still got a bit of room for improvement and and a bit of fine-tuning is is up front where obviously here they played Firmino, Jesus and Richardson, but with Richardson more through the middle than than usual, um, which I don't think necessarily gets the best out of him. Um, but he was unlucky to have a goal chalked off for quite a tight um, offside call. Um, and yeah, you know, they're all very good players, but I don't think anyone's stepped up and really grabbed one of those positions as a 100% guaranteed starter. And there's 
you know, without Neymar, they are lacking that bit of inspiration and, and magic. So that's probably the the key and probably the only bit of analysis from from the Brazil side of things that you you can get from the game. I mean, I thought the Firmino's winner was was actually quite an, a good finish, even though it looked like a simple tap in. It was quite an awkward height, so he'll be happy to have got a goal. But um, yeah, I think when it comes to Venezuela, it's all the hope that we had for them as this might be the qualification to, um, tournament to to get them through to a first World Cup feels to have slightly been dulled somewhat. The the kind of momentum that they seem to have um, has, has been lost um, a li- little bit. And and every game, you know, they're, they're competitive in all the games. They're, they're solid, they're well-organised, but you all, you don't really see them getting the result. You know, you, I, I see them kind of losing every game by maybe a goal or, or maybe managing to hold on for a draw. I'm, I'm not seeing where they're going to get the get the wins from at this point apart from obviously Bolivia being the only one that I think everyone's got earmarked for for at least uh, three points at, at home so yeah disappointing um that we're not seeing more from from Venezuela but yeah so Brazil you know comfortably the, the best side in this in this tournament and, and keeping up the the 100% record Adam, you can't really blame Venezuela for the the approach in this match. I mean, what were they going to do? They were going to come in and they were going to try and bunker and see if they can get a point. You'll see a lot of teams do that against Brazil, away against Brazil. Um, But as for the Brazilian perspective, um, it's still Brazil, right? Like, they can have a little bit of fun, right? Uh, This game was bordering on a disgrace. Um, Yeah, because... I think all of us here on this podcast are big defenders of kind of international football. But if 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 the haters of international football wanted to present a case of why it should be stopped, I think this would be exhibit A. Um, it, it was just Venezuela, you know, never looked like they believed that they could score a goal in, the, in this game, um, which... To be fair, it's a problem many sides have when they go away to Brazil. And Brazil, without Neymar, just looked you know, completely without a spark. In fact, it was probably, uh, as well as being a terrible advert for international football, it was also an absolutely fantastic advert for for. For the ability for the ability of Neymar to light up a football match, because this without him really felt like a real slog to get through. Yeah, Brazil obviously deserved the win overall, but yeah, they did the bare minimum really. Um, and yeah, compared to how they played in the qualifiers for 2018, you know, the last couple of years it's just felt very very dull in comparison bordering on Dunga Brazil levels of, of dullness. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite cold on them, even though they will obviously win this group uh, and qualify comfortably. I just, you know, when they come up against top European opposition at the next World Cup, it's difficult to, it's difficult to see how they're going to go through the gears to, to, to match the, the, top, the top European opponents, in my opinion. But maybe we will see this side develop more over the next couple of years. I think we've seen them really take on the the personality of what you'd expect a side coached by Cheech to do. And that is pragmatic, 
results oriented, you know, we got three points. What, what more do you want from us? Um, and to an extent, there's, there's, there's a bit of value in that for Brazil. I think particularly in comparison to where they were before this Cheech era. But Simon, it, it almost feels like, all right, you, you figured out how to be pragmatic and, and how to defend and, and how to win matches. Now go do something more. Like there's so much talent in this side. You know, you've got three Premier League strikers up front and you're laboring through breaking down a, a back line of, of the second worst team on the continent. Um, and Again, there's there's something to be said for pragmatism, and there's something to be said for defending and, and digging out uh, results against difficult opposition, and and you know that'll come into play on Tuesday when they go to Montevideo against Uruguay, and if they're this organized and this defensive, they're going to get a positive result there. But Simon, there wasn't a whole lot to be afraid of here for this Brazil side, and they almost played afraid for for portions of this match. It felt like. Well, you mentioned Dunga, and they, they started two defensive midfielders, <laughs> like Alan and uh, Douglas Luis. I don't know if that was necessary against a, a three-man Venezuelan midfield parked in front of their uh, penalty box. Uh, they had three shots on goal. Like, they, they had, you know, uh, 74% possession, um, but they only had three shots on goal. Venezuela only made 200 passes, which is which is amazing. You could probably do that in 25 minutes if you're a good team. Um, so yeah, I mean, also, I mean, as as limited as this Venezuelan side is, and they had a decent front three as well. I mean, uh, Jefferson Zoteldo, uh, Rondon, and uh, Machis is, isn't bad. They, they could have maybe done a little bit more, um, but also, I mean, you know, Brazil. Of course, they got the job done, but it was close to the 70th minute before they scored. If you get 75, 80 minutes, then you start panicking and that either is a good thing or a bad thing. And uh, they weren't they weren't too far off for all the possession they had. They weren't too far off from not winning this game, which was which was incredibly easy. But, you know, that yeah, I mean, the defence is solid, right? The defence is solid. The goalkeeper's great. You probably don't need two defensive midfielders. And, and Firmino, Richarlison, Gavin and Jesus are good, but... They're, for me, they're kind of, they're not the, necessarily the protagonists in their side. Obviously, Firmino drops off and is really important, but there's probably more important players around them. So those three, again, without Neymar, as you say, that they, they, they do lack they do lack the guy to make the spark. Firmino enables others in the final third, but he doesn't necessarily build the play in the same way as someone like Neymar does. You've got Alan and Douglas Ruiz, who are, uh, Luis, who are good players, but they work deeper. They work a little bit more conservatively. Uh, Gabriel Jesus again is the kind of player who is good at finding space and finishing chances off Richarlison again relies on the creativity of others uh, to make something happen so I, I, while this is disappointing and this is Brazil against uh, a Venezuelan side desperately trying not to lose too badly I'm not that surprised that they struggled for creativity for me the guy who came on and looked alright was Pedro up front he was like running around really enthusiastically obviously trying to secure himself a recall uh, for this side but but aside from that you know it was it wasn't slow it was ugh, lacking creativity they had all of the ball but they only got three shots on goal in you know despite playing the entirety of the game around the penalty box of Venezuela so my concern as well with Venezuela is that this is going to be what they do now because this almost worked against a really good side. Um, so, I, you know, it looked as though maybe we'd see a slightly more adventurous, confident Venezuela. 
Um, and they will take some confidence from the fact that this almost worked. Uh, but I, I do but they should think because that. like, don't do this for 18. Ma- you're not going to make the World Cup doing this for 18 matches. If you're Venezuela, your margin of error is so slim. You're already three losses in the bank. Like, you're not going to make the World Cup trying to pick up, you know, points away from home and, and maybe no, you, you've got to go and play something if you're going to do anything in this qualification cycle. Again, I, you can't really fault them for the approach here because it's Brazil on the other side. But yeah, at least, Adam, at least with this match, we got to listen to a recording of a of a Gregorian chant in the background. For uh, yeah, I was going to I was going to mention that earlier as, as, as part of another layer layer of awfulness in this game but just the the drone of the fake crowd noise in, in this game it was being pumped into the stadium right yes that's why it sounded so bad uh, it's just it's just awful awful uh, just i couldn't even sleep last night because i still had that buzz in in my head from the droning sound of the uh, fake noise crowd this is this isn't the biggest advert for South American football. <laughs> Leaving on a high note, just going, oh, I couldn't stand it. I couldn't sleep because of that game. Jesus Christ. <laughs> so yeah, we'll be back again on Tuesday then, if I... <laughs> <laughs> but the... Well, blame Brazil. Yeah. Uh, absolutely I think, shite. I think Tuesday will be very interesting, uh, obviously, on a number of different perspectives. Brazil-Uruguay is, is a very intriguing match, particularly given the, the recent performances of those two sides. We touched on it earlier, Ecuador-Colombia, very, very interesting with, with Ecuador now getting a chance to trot out that home form again. Uh, kind of feels like a, a last chance saloon maybe for Venezuela, a chance for Chile to consolidate. Um, Paraguay with the, the obligation really, three points at home against Bolivia is, is the expectation. And then Argentina-Peru to, to close it all off in what is a really intriguing match. So. Don't let the Brazil-Venezuela get to you. Uh, better matches to come, hopefully, on Tuesday. And and by then, uh, we should have a, a, a better picture of where these teams stand uh, with four matches in the books and, and you know almost 20% of this qualification cycle behind us. So good matches to come on Tuesday, and, and we'll be here to break it down for you when those conclude. Let's go around. Yeah. The t- go ahead, Adam. Yeah. Just- it's just very frustrating for me that the Chile-Venezuela game um, is on at the same time as the other game I'd be most interested to watch in in in, in Tuesday's round of fixtures, which is Ecuador Colombia. Yeah, can we get the uh, those half hour staggers? Makes things so much better. Even just a fifteen minute stagger. I, I don't know why matches are kicking off at the exact same time when we've got a whole day to to spread it out. I'm, I'm with you on that one. Uh, let's go around the table quickly, give people an opportunity to, to put in their plug. Simon, a late addition to the podcast. You joined midway through, but you put your shift in. You, you made it count. Great to have you on. Where can the listeners find you on Twitter? And is there anything you'd like to plug? Uh, cheers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, thank you, guys. Uh, so Twitter at Simon Edwards, SAF. And in terms of plugs, um, we did a couple of Patreon extras, which were really, really interesting. We were looking at uh, teams in Major League Soccer and looking at how they're moving towards focusing on South American talent, um, looking not only for some of these players that we've heard of, some of these young internationals, but also some of these very young 17-year-olds that they're bringing in uh, to their youth sides and really how big they're going on South American talent now. Uh, And then looking, we had a couple of episodes out in the last week or so. One, looking at uh, the general model. And then two, looking at some examples. We looked at 10 players 
coming from South America up to MLS, uh, profiling the players, looking at some players who are yet to move but are very likely in the near future. These are like exclusive information that you guys don't, nobody knows, nobody knows unless you're signed up to the Patreon. But there's five or six players that I know are heading to MLS um, within the next two months. And we're looking at some of the stories. What kind of players are MLS clubs looking for, whether it be free transfers, whether it be complete unknowns, whether it be some of these young stars, whether it be undervalued players, telling kind of the story of this this link between South America and MLS uh, through some of the transfers. So check it out, a couple of quid, you can cancel any time. There's hours of content there, so that's my little plug. And Tom, yourself? Yeah, you can uh, find me on Tom uh, Twitter at TomRob89, myself and yourself did a couple of scouting spotlight pods. Don't know when they'll be out, but um, looking at Gabriel Menino um, and Julian Alvarez. So keep an eye out for that. And also um, I've got a piece on Gabriel Menino for Scout as well. So yeah, check the Twitter for all of those. And Adam. Yep, you can find me at AdamBrandon84 on Twitter. Um, the only thing I'll probably plug at the moment is actually a, a thread I did on kind of the, my best 11 from the first half of the Ch- Chilean Primera Division. Um, yeah, so, some names in there that a lot of people may not have heard of, uh, heard about yet. Um, and yeah, a couple of those players also made it into this Chile squad. So, and I'm hoping at least one of them will will make their will make their debut for Chile. On Tuesday, as especially Carlos Palacios, a young uh, winger, twenty-year-old, um, he can also play inside. Uh, very talented um, passer of the ball, amazing vision, um, and uh, and yeah, I'm hoping that he gets some minutes against Venezuela on, on Tuesday. So yeah, check out that eleven. I'll, I'll I'll pin it up on 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 my Twitter feed, and and yeah, have a read of that. And you can find me on Twitter at Austin underscore James 906. Just a quick rundown of what we have coming for you on Tuesday. Chile visit Venezuela and Colombia visit Ecuador. Those matches will kick off at 9 p.m. in England. Uh, And then later on that night at 11 p.m. GMT, Brazil are in Montevideo to face Uruguay and Bolivia go to Asuncion to face Paraguay. And then to close the night out, uh, the late, Nightcap, Argentina are in Lima to face Peru. So an intriguing slate of matches coming your way on Tuesday. And as I said before, we'll be here to break it down for you when all that is done. A big thanks to the entirety of the panel, to Adam, Tom, and Simon for joining me. Thank you to you, the listener, for making this all possible. All that's listening to say is thanks for listening and goodbye.